If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of June 6, 2021. The podcast that invented the see-through privacy fence. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's nocturnate the news of the bogus. It's nice to see a Facebook-owned company fight for the free internet. WhatsApp has taken legal action in the Delhi High Court against the government of India to block regulations that would require apps to trace the first originator of a message, completely breaking end-to-end encryption. Of course, India is WhatsApp's biggest market with over half a billion active users. According to a WhatsApp spokesperson, quote, Requiring messaging apps to trace chats is the equivalent of asking us to keep a fingerprint of every single message sent on WhatsApp, which would break end-to-end encryption and fundamentally undermines people's right to privacy. We have consistently joined civil society and experts around the world in opposing requirements that would violate the privacy of our users. The regulations are called the Intermediary Guidelines in Digital Media Ethics Code, and isn't it always scary whenever a government claims to be doing something out of ethics? Applying to any platform with at least 5 million registered users in India, they require, quote, identification of the first originator of the information that is required only for the purposes of prevention, detection, investigation, prosecution, or punishment of an offense related to sovereignty and integrity of India, the security of the state, friendly relations with foreign states, or public order or of incitement to an offense relating to the above, or in relation with rape, sexually explicit material, or child sexual abuse material, punishable with imprisonment for a term of not less than five years. In other words, it lets them see just about anything they want to. Quote, Intermediary shall not be required to disclose the contents of any message or any other information to the first originator. Yeah, but how are you going to do all that without disclosing the contents? How do you know if it's sexually explicit or related to sovereignty or whatever if you can't see the actual content of the message? But it's nice to know our government is far from the only one using CSAM material as an excuse for breaking encryption. We've covered before how WhatsApp has locked horns with Brazil several times, and currently they're opposing a proposal to require messaging apps to have a permanent identity stamp attached to all messages. But any form of traceability requirement, according to the company, breaks security. Quote, Traceability is intended to do the opposite, by requiring private messaging services like WhatsApp to keep track of who said what and who shared what for billions of messages sent every day. Traceability requires messaging services to store information that can be used to ascertain the content of people's messages, thereby breaking the very guarantees that end-to-end encryption provides. In order to trace even one message, services would have to trace every message. The Indian government has countered that WhatsApp can do so securely by tagging each message with a cryptographic hash, because hashes are magic and can be made without access to the contents. The company also said it turns the principles of justice on its head, quote, In a typical law enforcement request, a government requests technology companies provide account information about a known individual's account. With traceability, a government would provide a technology company a piece of content and ask who sent it first. 
The Indian government said that of course it is absolutely dedicated to the right of privacy of its citizens, but repeated the old government trope that it's subject to reasonable restrictions and no fundamental right is absolute. Uh, if it's not absolute, how is it a fundamental right? They said it's up to WhatsApp to find a solution that ensures, quote, the right of privacy to all its citizens, as well as have the means and the information necessary to ensure public order and maintain national security. Just nerd harder, nerds! If you're looking for ways to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand advertisements, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to listen to the podcast and all of my videos on BitTube.tv or LBRY.tv to get cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. Or if you listen to the podcast at the podcast page, you'll also generate crypto. You can also go to airtime.bogosity.tv to get the airtime extension and generate crypto for yourself and the creators on the web anywhere you go, including my YouTube channel. Get five tubes free just for installing the extension and signing up, and then simply browse the web as normal. Easily monetize your favorite creators and yourself with cryptocurrency without advertising on BidTube.tv or LBRY.tv or with the Airtime extension at Airtime.Pagosity.tv. Meanwhile, for privacy back home, a number of public interest groups, trade organizations, and law professors have come out in support of Cox Communications in their appeal to the Fourth Circuit to reverse the piracy liability ruling. We covered before how a Virginia jury ruled Cox liable for the pirating activity of its subscribers because they refused to terminate accounts after repeated accusations. But the Internet is totes a public utility. In its opening brief to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, Cox argued that it's wrongly being held liable for the actions of its users and mentioned the harm that a loss of internet access can cause to individuals and businesses. Several organizations have filed amicus curiae briefs supporting Cox. One of them comes from 17 intellectual property law professors who claim that Cox can't be held liable because there's no evidence its policies act as a draw to pirates. Quote, there was no evidence in this case that customers subscribed to Cox because of any knowledge or expectation about how it treated infringement. Indeed, the record shows no evidence that customers subscribed to Cox for any reason other than to access the Internet for its wide variety of legal uses. Also, the harms of a loss of Internet access are far disproportionate to the crimes its users are accused of. Quote, if ISPs are forced to engage in proactive enforcement, they have a limited set of actions they can take to control alleged infringement. Their primary tool, terminating accused subscribers from the Internet altogether, is a blunt instrument that would lead to remedies disproportionate to any violation. The COVID-19 pandemic has reinforced the Internet's importance. A loss of Internet service, now more than ever, could seriously harm almost every aspect of an individual's personal and professional life. Another brief was submitted by the EFF along with several library organizations. They pointed out that ISPs have no meaningful ability to supervise the activities of users, the district court's reasoning violates the concept of fair notice, and echoed the sentiment that the punishment of termination is way disproportionate. They also mentioned the number of users that have a choice of only one wired internet provider with speeds of 25 megabits or faster. Quote, 
In sum, terminated subscribers would face near-insurmountable difficulties such as fundamental parts of life as finding and maintaining work, getting an adequate education, and obtaining health care. Innocent users, who may not even know they share an internet connection with repeat infringers, should not bear the punishment of losing the ability to participate in economic and civic life. This punishment is overly harsh for most infringers as well. The harm of being fundamentally cut off from society is disproportionate to the costs of non-commercial, small-scale copyright infringement. No judge-made doctrine of secondary liability or interpretation of Section 504 requires or should require these consequences. Another amicus from the Internet Association shared largely the same sentiments, and a further amicus from broadband and wireless organizations said, quote, This is a quintessential case of using a cannon to kill a mosquito. The consequences of denying consumers access to the Internet based on unverified allegations of prior copyright infringement cannot be overstated. It has become particularly evident over the past year that the Internet has become not only an essential platform for the exercise of free speech, but a critical means of access to education, employment opportunities, vaccines, medical care, defense, and vindication of legal rights, and access to food and other essential products and services. By the way, pay attention to that word, unverified. These are just claims made by the big content companies, absent any legal proceedings, that their users have broken the law, really, you can trust us, have we ever steered you wrong? But their brief says, quote, The notices sent to Cox by appellees in this case are simply too vague to place transmission ISPs on notice of infringement, failing to meet even the congressionally mandated threshold set out in analogous statutes. Among their material shortcomings, the notices often equivocated in their own assertions, including cautionary language that the target may be liable and that the notices are accurate based upon the data available to us. In many cases, the notices did not even identify the alleged infringing works. They also pointed out that the notices don't give enough information to identify an infringing user. Even if they could identify a user by the ever-changing IP address, there's no way to identify, for example, which member of a household was the alleged infringer. It's a bit like saying, because some random clown accused some guy of maybe driving drunk sometime, his entire family shouldn't be allowed to own cars. And even if they could, the law also requires that the ISP materially contribute to that specific infringement. They don't. They just act as conduits. Their users haven't even been given any opportunity to contest such notices. Hopefully these arguments will prove persuasive, although it'll be interesting to see what kind of amicus briefs the content companies end up submitting. Meanwhile, similar action is being taken against Cloudflare, although not by Hollywood or the major record labels, but by, get this, two makers of wedding dresses. It's the same bogus arguments, though. Cloudflare is a conduit that just provides access, but nonetheless they were taken to court by these wedding dress companies. How you can illegally download a wedding dress, I have no idea. But supposedly, there are makers of counterfeit wedding dresses out there, which if anything makes even less sense. And they're all triggered because Cloudflare won't take their websites down. Cloudflare has rightly stated that these takedown notices aren't proof of anything. Nonetheless, the California federal court allowed the case to move forward. What are they going to do next? Sue UPS for delivering these counterfeit dresses? 
Is there anything else anyone could possibly do to demonstrate what a joke this all is? If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home. And don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. And one more update, the case of Coniglia v. Strom we talked about, where the police seized the firearms of Edward Coniglia from his home under the community caretaking exception. The Supreme Court has now ruled that they could not seize the firearms. Unanimously. Justice Thomas, writing the opinion, said, quote, The First Amendment's community caretaking rule goes beyond anything this court has recognized. The decision below assumed that respondents lacked a warrant or consent, and it expressly disclaimed the possibility that they were reacting to a crime. The court also declined to consider whether any recognized exigent circumstances were present because respondents had forfeited the point. True, Katie also involved a warrantless search for a firearm, but the location of that search was an impounded vehicle, not a home, a constitutional difference that the opinion repeatedly stressed. In fact, Katie expressly contrasted his treatment of a vehicle already under police control with the search of a car parked adjacent to the dwelling place of the owner. Katie's unmistakable distinction between vehicles and homes also places into proper context its reference to community caretaking, and this court has repeatedly declined to expand the scope of exceptions to the warrant requirement to permit warrantless entry into the home. And, of course, taking the firearms was very much a step too far. And this specifically denies the argument that the Biden administration put before the court, which they were hoping to use to justify an executive order on gun control. Apparently, they were going to use a health and safety interest justification to allow for gun confiscation. What will they do now? We'll have to see. But it's unlikely that any such executive order will have any teeth at this point. Do you have children, or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling, or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttletwins, and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary-aged children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain, or regulations passed in the name of safety, and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. 
They're just $9.99 apiece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. And now it's time to defoliate this week's biggest bogani emitter. And it's another ridiculous drug test showing not one but two drugs where there clearly weren't any at all. We've covered before how all sorts of things, from powdered sugar to cotton candy, have tested positive for drugs by the El Cheapo field test so many cops rely on. And they don't incur any penalty whatsoever for false positives. And once they get that positive, they're free to search, seize, and arrest with impunity. But what's even more incredible in this case is what they decided to test. Police with the city of Springfield, Illinois, pulled over Dartavius Barnes and handcuffed him while they searched his car without consent, warrant, or probable cause. In the course of the search, they took a sealed urn full of, get this, his two-year-old daughter's ashes, opened it, spilled it out, and tested it for cocaine. It came back negative, so what did the cops do? They tested it again! And this time it came back positive for a combination of meth and ecstasy. Because that's totally how drug dealers transport their drugs, mixed together with ashes. But that's how these bogus tests work. It's not like on TV where guys in white coats and eye protection for some unexplained reason test the substance and see what's in it. They work backwards. Oh, it didn't test positive for one drug? Must be some other drug. And even if it didn't test positive for anything, it must still be drugs because it's powdery and in a container. They'll get that identification in based on training and experience. Barnes acted completely lawfully and properly the whole time, but as we've seen before, even that has been asserted as a reason to suspect criminal activity. We wish Barnes the best of luck in his lawsuit against the city, but unfortunately, according to the government's twisted definition of the word reasonable, the search and detention will probably be held to be reasonable because a completely faulty drug test told them those ashes were really drugs. Meaning that anything can be drugs, and we can all be searched and arrested at any time for any reason. What should happen is that all of these tests should be thrown out as completely unreliable and any past convictions based on them vacated. And also, any police who would think for one second that cremation ashes might be drugs should be kicked off the force and all their convictions vacated. But I'm not putting any money on that happening. So all of that makes the city of Springfield, Illinois, this week's Biggest Bogani Emitter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. 
All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a three-month warranty, and one-on-one customer service. Go to Firmu, that's F-I-R-M-O-O.Bogosity.TV anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmu.Bogosity.TV. And now let's trifurcate this week's Idiot And this week it goes to California State Assembly member David Chu for once again showing the gun control nut bars don't actually know any more about guns than creationists know about biology or homeopaths know about clinical trials. Chu tweeted a lament about a piece of discarded packaging he'd found, but not because it was littering. Quote, Finding the discarded packaging of a semi-automatic on a leisurely weekend walk was disturbing, particularly during this month's surge of gun violence in San Francisco. Hashtag end gun violence. Hashtag enough is enough. But if he'd bothered to actually read the packaging, he would have seen that it wasn't a semi-automatic, but a BB gun. Specifically, a 1.77 caliber CO2 air gun in the shape of a Glock 19. The internet immediately proceeded to make glorious fun of him, including pointing out that pistols aren't packaged in clear plastic wrap with hangers. Anyone googling it can easily see the hard case with interior foam they're actually packaged in. Chu has since deleted the tweet out of sheer embarrassment, but as the archive link in the show notes proves, the internet is forever. A better question for Chu is, how come your state, and even your district, which includes eastern San Francisco, has such a problem with gun violence when it has such amazing gun control laws, according to the Brady campaign, of which you are a member? He tried to do damage control in a later tweet, quote, I deleted an earlier tweet that misidentified a Glock 19 air pistol. While not a semi-automatic, It's still disturbing to see remnants of a weapon that can cause injury, especially in an area where young kids play and while we are dealing with a surge of gun violence in SF. Yeah, they could shoot their eye out! Federal law doesn't even consider air guns to be firearms! Chu is not only a leading advocate for gun control in California, but also a champion of several bills requiring the gun manufacturers employ micro-stamping. This is where the make, model, and serial number of a gun is carved on the firing pin in letters smaller than the width of a human hair to be stamped on the casing when it's fired so that the owner of the firearm can be identified. Chu says that micro-stamping is, quote, a common-sense crime-solving tool. There's just one problem. It isn't technologically feasible. Firearm companies have tried several times to make a firearm capable of doing so, and they just can't. Even in perfect lab conditions, the markings are almost completely illegible. Even Todd Lizotte, who holds the patent for the technology, recognized this in a peer-reviewed study published in the Journal of the Association of Firearms and Toolmark Examiners. The study found, quote, Legitimate questions exist related to both the technical aspects, production costs, and database management associated with micro-stamping that should be addressed before wide-scale implementation is legislatively mandated. A study from the National Academy of Science and sponsored by the U.S. Department of Justice also found the technology lacking, as did a study from Iowa State University. And even assuming the technology works, which it doesn't, 
Actual criminals could simply retrieve their casings from a crime scene or, worse still, salt the crime scene with casings with fraudulent stamping. The micro-stamp would wear down with subsequent firing and become illegible after a while. Criminals could just file them off like they do serial numbers. And there are plenty of guns manufactured prior to this requirement that would be in high demand on the black market. Also, of course, they could just use a revolver. Also, notice that firearms sold to law enforcement are exempt. Could it be they don't want to leave evidence behind of who was actually involved in the officer-involved shooting? But Chu, like most gun control idiots, is undeterred by reality. Last year, he posted an article to his website called Calling the Gun Industry's Bluff, in which he said, quote, The gun industry has been dragging its feet on a common-sense law that would make guns safer and hold criminals accountable. Together, we can force them to take action that will save lives. Technology that, again, doesn't work. Quote, A micro-stamping law was signed in 2007, but the gun manufacturers in California decided simply to stop producing any new handguns at all, arguing that the technology was too hard to implement. Well, so what are you going to do? Force them to manufacture new handguns? Quote, my bill simplifies the micro-stamping requirement in a way that the gun industry has admitted in court they can already do. Citation needed, moron. And it had better be more convincing than peer-reviewed scientific journals. Quote, It's far past time for excuses by the gun industry. As a father, I'm ready to do all I can to ensure that all of our children are safe and that gun makers are held accountable. But again, what does he expect gun manufacturers to do? This post is just bluster and chest puffing. So yeah, this is nothing more than pseudoscience, demanding the impossible from gun manufacturers so he can make himself look good, and perhaps even set up for the gun confiscation liars like him insist they aren't going to do, but acknowledge when pushed. So all of that makes David Chu this week's... Idiot Well, that wraps up this You're a Complete Teacup, Aren't You? edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Milton Friedman. Every friend of freedom must be as revolted as I am by the prospect of turning the United States into an armed camp by the visions of jails filled with casual drug users and of an army of enforcers empowered to invade the liberty of citizens on slight evidence. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial Note Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity. We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the internet-enabled devices you buy. 
and the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password. LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium. Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now.